showing up here just after Paul got uh, pulled out of getting torn asunder by an angry crowd. Starting with verse 37 of, of uh, Acts 21, and then heading into part of 22 to finish the discourse. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they, turned, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our forefathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat uh, those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Good morning. Hey, if you weren't awake before that good morning, now you are awake officially. It is good to be in the Lord's house this morning. Thank you, Kevin, for the reading of the word. Before we jump in, uh, I'd like us to go to the Lord and ask his blessing 
on his word this morning. Lord, we're reminded from your word and the, the question that the psalmist asks, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Father, we thank you that you have recorded for us answers to those questions. He who walks uprightly, works righteousness, speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money with interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. You promise that he who does these things shall never be moved. And Father, with your word open before us today, we ask that you teach us your statutes. Teach us what it is you would desire for us to know this day from your word. Lead us in the way everlasting. Stir us with a longing for more of you and more of your word in us. And guide us, Father, we ask, by your good spirit to walk in your truth, to exhibit the character of one who will dwell with you in your holy hill. And it's in the name of the righteous and just one, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. You know, this week, as, as I was looking at the text and, and making preparations for the text this week, the question that kept coming to my attention is, how do you preach a speech? How, how do you preach a speech? And, and, you know, as I was stirring that question, I was reminded that here in this last part of Acts... There are five speeches or defenses, all of varying lengths. The one today is to the Jewish audience. There's one next week that we'll talk about. It's, it's relatively short, but it's to the Jewish Sanhedrin. There's one coming that's to Felix, to Festus, and to Herod Agrippa II. Already in Acts, we've heard a speech in Acts chapter 2. You remember that? In Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, Peter, in response to the arrival of the Holy Spirit, he identifies what's happening. And he stands, and one of the first things he says is, these men are not drunk as you suppose. And he goes on to explain the arrival of the Holy Spirit as prophesied by Joel the prophet. And the outcome of that speech. What's on the other side of the speech? Well, the Bible says there were some 3,000 that were saved that day. There's another speech that happens in Acts 3, which leads to an arrest and some time in prison. Acts 4 is a speech before the Sanhedrin, which results in threats not to teach again in the name of Jesus. Acts 5, another speech, teaching, occurred on the back end of an angelic break from prison. They were instructed by the angel, remember, not to flee, but to go into the temple and teach the people. Well, once again, the result of that speech was imprisonment. And once again, later in Acts 5, we see a speech given to the Jewish Sanhedrin, who, being furious at what they heard, they were plotting to kill the apostles. Well, they're beaten and they're told once more not to teach in the name of Jesus. Stephen delivers a speech, a defense, throughout the entirety of Acts 7. And the result of his speech was martyrdom. The Jewish people stoned him outside the city. A further result of Stephen's martyrdom was the expansion of the gospel into Judea and Samaria. A few chapters later, a speech is given at the home of Cornelius in Acts 10. And the result is the opening of the door to the Gentiles to receive the same Lord, the same baptism, the same faith, the same spirit. Paul, when he travels the Mediterranean, he gives many speeches, many defenses. Tracing the history of God's marvelous works persuading and explaining the gospel, calling men to repent of their sins, to turn to God and to do works befitting repentance. That was his pattern. And church, the results were staggering. Churches were being planted. 
People's lives were being changed. The gospel kept moving to the end of the earth. The speech motive is, is oftentimes in Acts a mechanism through which the gospel is heard and faith comes to fruition. It's really in many ways like what Paul says in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the word of God. I recount these things about the speech in the book of Acts because we encounter another speech right here today in Acts 22. You know, I think for many of us, when we think of speech, we think of dry, boring lecture. How many of you think about that? A speech. Maybe if you, especially those of you maybe in, in, in school growing up, you, you maybe heard or some professors maybe gave a, a bad or negative connotation to someone delivering a speech. But I want to remind you this morning, as we have God's word open before us, that this is God's living, active word. And it cuts to the heart, the Hebrew writer says. It, it judges the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It lays open the intent of our heart. This word that we have before us is instructive. It teaches us something. Listen, it teaches us something about God. It teaches us something about Jesus. It teaches us something about the Holy Spirit. It teaches us something about who we are and our relationship, our proper relationship to God. It's corrective. It's part of our ongoing training. It's delivered for the purpose of living a Christ-centered, righteous life. So, so the bulk of the text, what we have before us, is a speech. The passage under examination this morning can be partitioned into three segments. If we're just looking at how we break this passage down, three segments. There, there's the events leading up to the speech, which is the end of chapter 21. There's the speech itself, the first 21 verses of chapter 22. And then the outcomes of the speech. Now, the big idea of the text, I think it's important for us to grasp and get a hold of. We'll be coming back to it time and again. God's calling determines one's steps. God's calling determines one's steps. Now, if we're to personalize that big idea for just a moment and ask the question, how has God's calling determined your steps, my steps? How has God's calling determined your steps? For some of you here this morning, perhaps you've not yet been called. Perhaps you're not yet in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you will be. But for many of you who here are in Christ Jesus, how has God's calling in your life directed your steps? Some questions I'd like you to think about up front. These are important questions, I think, for us to consider. As you consider God's great rescue in your life, what's been evident on the other side of that rescue? Has his rescue compelled you to take steps of faith? Has his rescue in your life led you to exercise godliness in this present evil age? Have you seen your divine rescue as nothing more than a pass out of hell? Is there something tangible that you can point to, some kind of evidence available that you are walking a course consistent with the truths and doctrines of biblical Christianity? And just as a, a measure or a, a gauge, if you will, we'll take one chapter from the scripture. 1 John chapter 2. And in 1 John chapter 2, one of the things we can see in 1 John chapter 2 is that knowing him is keeping his commandments. We see there that loving your brother is evidence of walking in the light. We see in 1 John chapter 2, doing the will of God is investing in eternity. We see there that practicing righteousness is evidence that you are born of God. And we see there that abiding in Christ now provides confidence at his coming. If God has called you to himself, church... How would you identify the change that he's made in you? 
If he's called you to himself, how would you identify the change he's made in you? And how has that change made a difference in your life? How has it affected your spouse? What evidence do your children see that this divine rescue has made any real lasting difference? I encourage you to prayerfully consider these questions as we look at the text. And we look at the text today and ask the question, how does God's calling in Paul's life drive his course of action in the text? Is there any correlation between Paul's divine rescue, Acts 9, and his ongoing decision making? Anything in this life that matches up with his profession to follow Jesus. Now we left Paul last week in a precarious situation, didn't we? We left him last week. He's on the stairs of the fortress of Antonia. He's been bound with two chains. Having been rescued from the bloodthirsty Jews seeking his life. He's on the stairs and he's about to be taken into custody for questions. The voices of opposition are bellowing, away with him, away with him. That's code for kill him. Get rid of him. Paul is among a people who want to be rid of his voice. And I thought about that and I thought, wow, today, isn't that so true today? Christians, we are surrounded by people who want desperately, it seems in some occasions, to be rid of his voice. How do we respond? What's our course of action? Well, instead of disappearing into the barracks and breathing a sigh of relief that he now has a new lease on life, Paul does something here that is odd. It's odd. It really is. Now, maybe for Paul it's not odd, but I found myself reading and scratching my head a little bit at why Paul does what he does here. It's like it's almost a cringe. It's like, Paul, just leave well enough alone. Just, Paul, just go into the barracks. Let the people calm down. Paul doesn't just go with the soldiers into the barracks. He turns to the commander and he speaks to him. And he says, may I speak to you? The commander, somewhat startled and surprised, you speak Greek? Aren't you the ringleader of that Egyptian rebellion that tried to overthrow the Roman government some time ago? By the way, Josephus in his history writes about that very event. And this commander thinks that Paul is the ringleader of that group. Paul assures him, no, sir. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please, I beg you, permit me to speak to my countrymen. Permit me to speak. As we look at the text this morning, there are going to be some phrases here that we'll put forward. This is the first of them. Permit me to speak. Paul desires to speak to these people. And I ask the question, why would he want to speak to these people? What is the driving motivator for Paul wanting to speak to this group of people? Here it is. It's his love for his countrymen. His love for them. Well, where did he get such a love for his own people? Well, I believe the Lord poured out his love in Paul's heart through the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 5, 5. You see, that's what happens when we have the Holy Spirit in us. God pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Paul has a love for his people. In fact, we see Romans 10, 1. Paul says, that's his prayer. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Paul opens his mouth and risks asking a question. May I speak to you? And this opens up conversation. And the Lord provides permission to speak to the Jewish people. And here's what's puzzling about the situation, church. A good number of us would have played it safe right here. Having been beaten and left for dead, we probably would have felt like getting away at this particular point in time. After all, who wants to hang around people bent on killing you? 
Anybody? Anybody want to hang around those folks? Okay, I didn't think there'd be hands on that one. It's just not something we choose to do. Seems like Paul here should just play it safe. You know, I was thinking about this and I was reminded of of younger days and some of you maybe have played this. This is a fairly um, popular game. The game Monopoly, right? Now, I know some of you, when you play that game, you, you, have, you turn into a different person. It's not intended to be that, okay? But, but I was reminded of, of a, a part of the game where, you know, you pick up one of those cards and it says, Go to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You go to jail. And, you know, I was thinking about that. As I was reading the text, it, this thought came to my mind. You know, depending upon how you play the game, which I know everybody has their own set of rules on how to play Monopoly. Yes, fess up. You make up your own rules. That's right. But if there are a lot of houses and hotels on the board, I've found jail is one of the safest places to be. Huh? It's, it's a pretty safe place. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about wondering, is there a desire in your own life to regularly play it safe? Just play it safe. Even in our prayers, listen, even in our prayers, do you find yourself praying regularly for safety? Are we more concerned about safety or following the wind of the Holy Spirit wherever he may lead us? Now that's frightening to some of us, I know. That's borderline over here close to what some may call charismatic. Listen, I believe. I believe this with my whole heart. And I believe the word backs this up, what we're talking about. That the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he does lead us to take risks at times. For his name's sake, for his glory. Playing it safe can be, listen, it can be a disguise for selfishness. As we seek out ways to preserve the flesh from the least amount of trouble, the least amount of pain, the least amount of fallout. G.A. Henty's audio version, some of you may have read the book Under Drake's Flag. The audio is slightly different. But there's a scene in there that captures this idea of what it is to pursue safety. And what's happened, just to kind of brief you on this, we're going to try, I've got it here on my computer, we're going to see if we can listen to it. I'm going to try and get you to hear it. But I'm going to prep it by just saying this. Young Ned Hawkshaw, Ned is, is, has just been out in the storm. He's a great swimmer. And there's a big storm at sea. And he's in the village and he, he swims out to rescue. There's an old man. He rescues this old man and Ned himself is pulled out of the water by this man who happens to be Sir Francis Drake. Sir Francis Drake, by the way, was the man that every young man wanted and desired to sail the seas with. In the scene I'm going to play for you, Ned is rushing back home to tell his mother who he saw. And in the scene, there's going to be Ned, and there's going to be his mother, and there's going to be an Uncle Richard. I want you to key in on the conversation specifically between Uncle Richard and Ned's mother. Mother! Mother! What is it, Ned? Oh, Uncle Richard, I met... 
met him. I actually met him. Met who? Captain Francis Drake. And he said, if he is ever to come back to Westport, he will be certain to make me part of his crew. Part of his crew? Excellent. Mother, did you hear? Yes, I heard. Now, go and get into some dry clothes before you start shivering. But, Mother, Captain Francis Drake. Yes, I heard. Go now, and be quick about it. Yes, Mum. Margaret, you do realise you... I am more than well aware. Robert would talk about that man ever and anon. It is every man's dream to serve with Captain Drake. Robert had many dreams. And what good did they do him? Ned will stay here, where he belongs, where he's safe. That sounds like a mother's love. You know I love him with everything I have left in me. In truth, it is a mother's fear. I wish you not... You wish to... not to let him go. But you know what is in his heart. As it was with his father. Ned will stay. You are afraid your son will die as Robert did. But you can lose your son in other ways as well. mother is found here playing it safe. And on one hand, he says, that sounds like the love of a mother. And on the other hand, he follows that up, sounds like fear. And he says, there are other ways that you can lose your son. I was reminded of the lyrics of the song, speak to this whole idea of safety. You might recall the lyrics. Standing on the shoreline, looking out to sea. At oceans of your hopes for me, just beyond my reach. I've been here on this island for many too many years. A prisoner of my comforts. A slave to my own fears. Doubt is saying, got to stay. Faith is saying, sail away. And the chorus says, I know it's safe here on the shore, but freedom is worth dying for. Liberation comes to those who hear the truth and sail with you. I'll go where you are calling me. I'll be what you've meant me to be. I know the risk is real, but I want to feel the freedom of the seas. Paul says, permit me to speak. Even in his condition, even to a people who recently tried to take his life, even though now a prisoner, he asks and is given permission to speak. Now what? Here's the second phrase I'd like to give you. Permit me to speak. Hear my defense. Hear my defense. The speech begins in chapter 22. Not your ordinary speech. Would you agree? Paul didn't pull out his prepared notes. He didn't set them on the podium. He didn't just preach to the crowd. This speech, like the collection of speeches found in the book of Acts, is drawn from notes of scripture written on the canvas of his heart. He's pulling from the reservoir of his experiences with God. His relationship with God. And notice that this speech, notice this, this is very important for us to get. It's not given to win an argument. He's not bitter toward these people that are before him. Bitterness wouldn't want anything to do with a mob-like crowd hungry to kill him. I believe love won out here on this day. I believe it's it's the, the idea that Paul expresses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That it was in light of the terror or in light of the judgment to come. Paul is found on this day persuading men. The speech has three general parts to it. Here they are. The first part is background and training. First five verses. Verses 6 through 16 speaks of his conversion. And then verses 17 through 21 speaks of his calling. Paul's speech begins like Stephen's in Acts 7, verse 2. Brethren and fathers, listen. That's, what, that's how Stephen began. Stephen's speech is a defense 
like Paul's. But lest you think that Stephen and Paul are the only ones called to give a defense. I believe it's helpful and important for us to turn our attention to Peter's first epistle. Chapter 3, verse 14. Peter says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready. To give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. You know, I have oftentimes thought about this text in 1 Peter and thought the only time and occasion for a defense is when someone asks. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time someone asked you about the reason for the hope that lies within you? I would venture to say there haven't been too many people ask you that question. Specifically. Is the instruction given by Peter... Limiting your defense to only those who verbally ask you of the hope that lies within you. Perhaps we've pocketed that idea and used it as an excuse for our poor witnessing efforts. Listen, 1 Peter 3.15 has a context, like all of Scripture, it has a context. The context is that of suffering. The previous verse in verse 14 says you're blessed if you're suffering for righteousness sake. Do not be afraid of their threats, Peter says, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. Always be ready. Paul is seen here in Acts 22 giving a defense. And last I checked. The angry crowd that's before him has little interest in what Paul has to offer. They're not asking Paul about this hope. They're ready to rid the earth of him. They're disgusted with this man. And it's in this context that Paul delivers his defense. Paul doesn't wait around for someone to ask him about his faith. He boldly proclaims the Christ to his countrymen who need to hear the message. What if the church operated this way? What if compelled by the love of Jesus Christ, you were so overcome by his divine rescue in your life that you just couldn't help but share a defense? What if you stopped waiting and started sowing the seeds? What if you practiced righteousness and stopped wavering? What if you actually took the Lord's invitation to come on out, get out of the boat, walk on the water, walk by faith? You just want to play it safe. Notice he immediately begins by making connections. First of all, we see he's courteous. He's respectful. Brethren and fathers. He's speaking their language. Verse 2. When they heard him speak in the Hebrew or Aramaic, they remained silent. He identified himself as a Jew. Verse 3. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up, he says, right here in Jerusalem. Trained under the tutelage of Gamaliel. Educated in the strictness of the law. He prescribes even a noble cause to their own zealous state. I love this in verse 3. He says, I was zealous toward God as you all are today. (laughs) He's, he's, He's giving and placing a noble cause on why they're so upset Sharing his background, sharing his training. He goes on to share the ramifications of his zealous activity in verse 4. He persecuted those following Jesus to the death, which is exactly what this crowd is doing to Paul. He submits references to the crowd in case they don't believe him. He says the high priest and, and, and the council of the elders, they know what I used to be like. Because I got letters from them to go to Damascus so that I could bring back these Christians and bring them back here to Jerusalem and lock them up. 
see his former actions connected to his audience. Paul once acted as they are now acting. The charges brought against him are interesting. And they're, remember the charge, last week we talked about the charge that came forth about Paul. This man teaches all men everywhere. What was he teaching all men everywhere? Well, he was teaching all men everywhere against the people. That was one of the charges. Well, right here in his defense, he's answering that defense in part. Because we see Paul himself is a Jew. And he has shown in his defense that he has a rich Jewish heritage. One of the other charges was against the law. He's teaching men everywhere against the law. Paul's personal testimony of the law is found in Romans 7 verse 12. He says the law is holy. The law is holy and the commandment is good and holy and just. Paul was taught in the strictness of the law by Gamaliel, which the audience would have known Gamaliel. Well respected among his listeners. And Paul writes even in in Philippians chapter 3 verse 6 as he's explaining his former way of living. He says concerning the righteousness which is in the law, Paul was blameless. Kept it to a T. It's best he knew how. He knew that law. He'd been trained in that law. So this charge that he's speaking against the law is quite foolish. And Paul is in his defense answering this charge. Verses 6 through 16 then recount his conversion. We see his background and his training. 6 through 16 is his conversion experience, which you can read about that in Acts 9. And just some notes on his conversion as seen here in the text. First of all, I want you to notice that it says that he describes a great light from heaven shining around him as he came in near Damascus. Remember that it's noon. And as bright as the sun is, the glory of the Lord is brighter. His light is obvious even at noonday. He hears a voice calling him by name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Whom you are persecuting. I'm surprised the speech didn't end right there. Jesus of Nazareth? Did his audience like this man, Jesus of Nazareth? No. Not at all. But he tells him he's getting somewhere. He's going somewhere with his defense. And this is who was speaking to Paul. Along the road to Damascus. For his audience, this man Jesus was the stumbling stone. But for Paul, his conversion centered on this man Jesus Christ. What shall I do, he says. And the Lord instructs him to go to Damascus where he'll be told. Listen, he'll be told all things, verse 10, appointed for him to do. Unable to see, he's led by the hand into Damascus to that house on Straight Street. Not exactly the way that he planned to go to Damascus, but he arrived there nevertheless. And the conversion account shifts in verse 13, 12 through 16, to this man Ananias, whom Paul describes as a devout man according to the law, one of them. And while Paul is praying, the Lord shows up to Ananias and instructs him to pay a visit to Paul, to commission him with the words from the Lord himself. Listen, uh, follow along with me in verse 13. He says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just or righteous one or the Christ, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. You will be his what? His witness. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. 
for clarity's sake, let's be certain what we know is being said here. Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, having already called upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Those are the words from Ananias given to him by the Lord. Paul had been divinely rescued from his former way of living. This righteousness which is from the law had been replaced with a righteousness of God apart from the law, which had been witnessed. Listen, this this righteousness apart from the law had been witnessed by the law and the prophets. Romans 3.21 tells us that. And this righteousness of God would come by way of Jesus Christ. Paul's defense includes background and training. And he's making connections with his audience. He's showing them that he too was brought up to act in the way that they are now acting. It includes his conversion experience where the Lord got his attention, opened his eyes to the truth. But it also included one other aspect and that's verses 17 through 21. Follow along with me. Verses 17 through 21. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. That might have been hard for his listeners to hear. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. We see that right at the end of 7 and in Acts 8. We're some years removed now from Stephen's martyrdom. Isn't it interesting that a part of his story, a part of what's stuck in his head, is the martyrdom of Stephen? And the Lord says, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And you know, it was right here, I was thinking about the expectations that we have of the outcomes of our defense. What if that person responds favorably to our defense? What if that person responds unfavorably? Are you consumed by a particular outcome that must be in place on the back end of your defense? What if the outcome is contrary to your desire? And how does the outcome affect your thoughts about God? Do you equate a rebellious response from your defense with, God, what are you doing? Do you equate an unfavorable response with, boy, this sure didn't work. Shouldn't have, I guess I shouldn't have done that. I believe that Paul would have kept going in his defense. But it came to an abrupt halt in verse 21. Why? Verse 22 says, they listened to him until this word. What's the word? Gentiles. The Gentiles, that word, that one word. And those are fighting words. The hot button became obvious in verse 21, didn't it? You know, and just that little thought right there, just that hot button for the crowd. Any hot buttons you know of in your own life? Hot buttons specifically open wounds of bitterness. And anger. Hot buttons that are not glorifying the Lord. And deep down you know they serve as a snare to your own soul. And we ask the question, could it be that even in the church, the church has people with hot buttons? Men and women of faith? Really? Oftentimes it takes one word. And kaboom! There they go. One word starts it. When these final verses of his defense, Paul is speaking to his calling. His calling. Background and training, conversion, his calling. 
I want you to notice again the charges against Paul. There was a third charge leveled at him last week, and that was that he spoke against the temple. You remember that? Well, right here, as he relates his defense to the people, he speaks of praying. Where is he praying? In the temple. He also communicates to his crowd that this is the place where he heard from the Lord. God speaking in the temple. You see, God's calling has a relational component attached to it. He's praying. He's communicating with the Lord who rescued him, verses 17 through 21. He receives instructions from the Lord in verse 18 to get out of town because the people in Jerusalem would not receive his testimony. The irony here is that the people that are gathered around Paul right now as he's speaking are just about to reject Paul's testimony once again. Paul relates to the Lord as though he knows him. Do you see this? He's relating with the Lord here in 17 through 21 as though he knows him. The Lord says something. Paul says something back. He says, hey, Lord, I understand why they're so uneasy about me. It's because I was standing by Stephen giving consent to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. I was imprisoning these people and beating those who believed on you. And yet the Lord follows up in verse 21 with depart. For I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. The wording there, send you far away to the Gentiles, I will send you, has in mind this, um, I will apostle you to the Gentiles. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because that's exactly what he was. That's exactly what he did. He became an apostle. He was apostle to the Gentiles. The Lord was calling him. Well, Paul's defense speaks of the charges against him. And yet he voices all the while his driving course of action. The calling of the Lord has moved him and sent him to the Gentiles. The calling of the Lord has compelled him to go and preach the good news of Jesus Christ. The calling of the Lord is the motivating factor for speaking to this group of Jewish people. What's the outcome of emphasizing Paul's calling to the people? His defense has shown that his actions have been driven by the Lord through the Holy Spirit. If the people are upset and angry over his actions, they need to understand that Paul's course for living has been according to the Lord. Why did Paul do what he did? Why did he do it? The love of Christ compelled him to go in this direction. Listen, Paul heard from the Lord and determined his course of action based upon the words from the Lord. Novel idea today. He heard from the Lord. And he walked that way. That's the message. And I think we need to lock that message into our minds. We need to ask the Lord to stamp that message on our hearts. He hears from the Lord. Listens for his voice even. And determines his steps. Let me share a few proverbs that speak to this. In 16.3, commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 10.8 says, The wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. And then Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare. And whoever trusts in the Lord, listen to this, whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Now, literally, that has in mind be set on high. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. So I was thinking, instead of praying for safety and defaulting to the safe route, how about we just trust the Lord with all of our heart? The word says, whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The crowd who had quieted is astir once again upon hearing that word Gentiles. Stott says in his commentary, he says it's important to understand why they were so furious and why they were so upset. He says in their eyes, proselytism, which is making Gentiles into Jews, was fine. 
But evangelism, making Gentiles into Christians without first making them Jews, was an abomination. It was tantamount to saying that Jews and Gentiles were equal, for they both needed to come to God through Christ and that on identical terms. They're furious. With the crowd stirred up once again in verse 22, the commander orders once again for Paul to be taken into the barracks for further questioning and examination that he might know why the crowd was in a frenzy. It's interesting here to note the commander more than likely didn't understand what Paul was saying speaking in Aramaic. You get that idea. So he's going to take him in. He's going to question him and find out why these people are so hot under the collar out here. They just blew up again. What's going on? Well, part of the examination process included a scourging. Howard Marshall in his commentary describes what this would have been like, the Roman practice. It was to examine slaves and other suspected persons by whipping them with a scourge that was composed of leather thongs to which rough pieces of bone and metal were attached. Jesus, our Lord, went through scourging. It was not uncommon for people to die in the course of scourging. This was a far worse experience, he writes, than undergoing a Jewish beating or the Roman punishment of being beaten with the lictor rods that Paul had been beaten with already. It was illegal to submit a Roman citizen to this method of examination. There were circumstances in which a magistrate might so act against a Roman, but only after a proper trial. So bound and ready to be punished, Paul speaks to the centurion. Verse 26. Or 25, is it lawful for you to scourge a, Ro- a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? The centurion's a little nervous. And he informs the commander and the commander comes back and says, tell me, are you a Roman? Paul says, yes. The commander says, with a large sum of money, I obtained my citizenship. Paul says, well, I, I was born a citizen. And with that, the commander halts the procedure, afraid of being found punishing a Roman citizen. Listen to this. This is incredible. It seems that the Romans are more concerned about justice than the Jewish people. The carriers of the oracles of God. (laughs) In this last section, Paul is simply saying, I am a citizen. He says, permit me to speak. He says, hear my defense. And now he's just simply saying, I'm a citizen. I am a citizen. What about this citizenship? One writer, he speaks to this and he says, citizenship, it tended to be either by right, by those of high status or office, or by reward for those who had served the empire well. It was passed on from father to son, which is the case, seems with Paul. It could also be bought, not with a fee, but with a bribe to some corrupt official in the imperial secretariat administration, which was the case with this commander, Claudius Lysias. Do you, do you see Claudius is his first name? Do you know who the emperor was around this time? Claudius was, he was associating himself. There was something there for Claudius Lysias. He had gotten his through some other high corrupt official. But Roman citizenship, we see this, it means something. There are certain privileges, certain access becomes available to those deemed a Roman citizen. And I'd like you, as we're thinking about a Roman citizen, and I know many of you here are going, well, this, how's that apply to me? I'm not a Roman citizen. I'm a citizen of these United States of America. Yes. I'd also like for you just a moment to consider your heavenly citizenship. How many of you here have heavenly citizenship? Okay, good. A lot of you. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, the same Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, he calls the saints to remember their heavenly citizenship. In chapter 3, verse 20 in Philippians, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it to be a citizen of heaven and yet have our feet planted right here on earth? What's that look like? Citizens of heaven are expected to wait for Jesus. He's coming back to earth. That's what the Bible tells us. He's coming again. And we are to be found eagerly waiting for him. How does a citizen of heaven 
wait expectantly for the Savior. How do we do that? 1 John 2, 28 gives us some help. He says, and now little children abide in him. That when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You see, citizens of heaven are even now abiding in the Lord. His words abide in them. The spirit of the Lord abides in them. Citizens of heaven have their minds set on things above, not on things here below. Citizens of heaven look forward to Jesus' return, and therefore they spend their days hungering and thirsting after the Lord. They steward their time by feasting on God's word, discipling others to walk, to be with Jesus. These citizens of heaven, they're consumed with God's mission to be a witness to Jesus, to burn brightly as a sojourner here on earth, to speak of Christ out of the overflow of, listen, a relationship with him. Have you noticed that heavenly-minded people are hard to rattle? Paul is a great example of a heavenly-minded man. I was also reminded of that Chinese missionary. Most of you know him, Brother Yoon. This is the title of his autobiography, Heavenly Man. Heavenly man. In part because he just had this heavenly mindset. He had this understanding. He had a contagious spirit of Christ in him. He longed to tell others about this Jesus that he knew, and he paid the price dearly for it on many occasions. But he was a heavenly man. You can't kill a heavenly man whose citizenship is in heaven. His heavenly citizenship directed his steps. It was the driving motivator behind his course of action. What is your life, friends? What does your life communicate about your heavenly citizenship? Heavenly citizenship will cause you to walk like Christ, which is in the light. Heavenly citizenship will also mean you choose not to walk in darkness. Heavenly citizenship means that the things of earth grow dim and have no hold on you in light of the world's passing away, 1 John chapter 2. Heavenly citizenship prizes the souls of men, beginning with your own first, beginning with those in your family. And you might ask how, I like like what you're saying, how is such a thing possible? MacArthur in his commentary says, Paul maintained the proper attitude. What was it? It was one of selfless love. It was his love for other believers that brought him to Jerusalem to deliver the offering. It was his love for his weaker brethren and desire for unity in the church that brought him to the temple. It was his love for his unsaved countrymen that led him to evangelize the hostile crowd. And it was his love for God that motivated his love for people. His love for God motivated his love for people. Friends, a love for the Lord Jesus Christ is what drives your course of action. Paul hears from the Lord and his steps are determined. As you hear from the Lord in his word through his spirit, our response is simply obey. Obey. Move as directed. The voice of the Lord ought to be the catalyst for your steps. Not just Paul's. Not just Peter's. Not just Stephen. You might want to know all the how-tos. Don't worry about it. If he's calling you, you can be assured that he will lead you and sustain you and complete every good work in you, whether in life or in death. Whether in life or in death. And we need to be reminded that God can receive glory either way. Amen? He can receive glory through a life Or through your death. Oftentimes what we find is that it's through the death. Greater glory is found. We need not be afraid of dying. How is God's calling in your life going to drive your course of action in these days ahead? I'd like to close with an illustration and a scripture. A few weeks back, family took a trip down to Brown County State Park. 
And while we were down there at State Park, I thought it would be fun, especially enjoyable for the young ladies in our home, to take a horseback ride. So we mounted our horses, took to the trails, with a guide leading the way. And at various points along the path, I found Jenga. That was my horse, Jenga. I found Jenga was lagging behind. But you know, I wasn't all that concerned because you see, I grew up watching a lot of westerns. And I knew what I needed to do. Along with a little nudge. A little nudge, a little sound. And it worked. And Jenga picked up her pace. She tried about knocking me off in the process. But she caught up. I was thinking about that. A sound and a nudge. That's all it took. That horse got the message. You know, I, I, I pray that the Spirit of God would convict each one here. That the Spirit would sound his own voice. And nudge us. See, some of you, I believe, need moving. Truth be told, all of us do. Some of you have been sitting on a dead horse for a long time. It's not going anywhere. Ask of the Lord... To prod you along to live as Christ has called you to live. Or to put it as Romans 12, 11 says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. It all begins with having a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus that if the one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. We're pretty good at that. Should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Does the love of Christ compel you to live for Jesus and move at his bidding? To go wherever, to whomever, for whatever purpose he deems necessary. Is his voice the determining factor that orders your steps? Let it be said of you that the love of Christ compels you. Don't be so concerned about the outcome. Don't be so concerned about playing it safe. You start rationalizing why it's probably not a good idea to open your mouth and speak a defense. If the Lord is calling you to that, if he's leading you that way, you can be assured. Remember, trust in the Lord and you shall be safe. Proverbs 29, 25. You can exalt the name of the Lord, whether in life or whether in death, church. Watch what the Lord does. When you choose to obey him, watch what he does. There are promises in here that when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. I'd like to conclude. I played the clip earlier from under Drake's flag. I'd like to conclude with a prayer It's the prayer that was written, composed in 1577 by Sir Francis Drake as he's getting ready to launch out. We're just going to conclude. I believe these words are very fitting to what we're talking about right here in God's Word. So I'm going to ask if you would to join me. We're going to pray. Disturb us, Lord. When we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we dreamed 
too little. When we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we've lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas where storms will show your mastery. Where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. This we ask in the name of our captain, who is Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.